Alright, I'm excited to get to preach God's Word to you this morning. It's uh, my first chance to preach in our new sermon series, uh, The Storyteller. And I say new, it's actually, we've been doing it for two months now. Uh, but I'm very excited. We've been going through the Bible looking at this great story that God is writing. Uh, this morning's chapter of the story is the Incarnation. And the Incarnation is God taking human form. And I find the, the timing of this sermon interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one is the time of year I'm preaching it. Because in about two months, or excuse me, a month and a half here, we're all going to be celebrating the Incarnation with Christmas. Everybody gets all excited about it, and we give each other gifts. And, uh, you know, the official start of the Christmas season is supposed to be the day after Thanksgiving. That's about three weeks from now. And three weeks from now, everyone will be very excited to hear a sermon on the Incarnation. Uh, you know, the church attendance always rises up right around Christmas time, and there will be lots of sermons all over about the Incarnation. Now, like I said, this is about three weeks early, but I don't think that that's actually a problem because if you go to any department store this afternoon, there's a good chance you're going to hear Christmas music. Starbucks already has all of their Christmas drinks out. And uh, I went to Market Basket and I've already bought my first half gallon of eggnog and my first bag of chestnuts. So uh, I don't really think that uh, you know we should be bound by that Friday after Thanksgiving. And if they can do all that superficial Christmas stuff this early, I don't see why I can't preach a sermon, uh, a Christmassy sermon, three weeks early. Uh, the second reason I find it a little interesting is because throughout the first year of our church, the sermon series was called The Defiant Incarnation. So we spent the entire first year of our church preaching about this, preaching about the Incarnation, the very first sermon ever given at Restoration Road was Joey Thompson preaching on the Incarnation. The title of his sermon was The Word, meaning Jesus, the Son of God, becoming flesh. However, you may or may not realize this, but we actually flew through the Gospel of John. The, that was the, the sermon series, The Defiant Incarnation, was just about the Gospel of John. And in our preaching meetings, uh, our preaching prep meetings, we were like, man, there's so much stuff we could say about this and so much that we really had to fly over. And in no way did we exhaust the topics uh, and the implications and just the, the mystery of the Incarnation. We could still easily be preaching the Defiant Incarnation still now today and have a lot more to go. The topic itself is so deep and it is so broad and so profound that we could preach on it every Sunday. And in fact, in some ways, we will preach on it every Sunday because every sermon we're going to have is going to point towards Jesus, is going to point towards Him taking on flesh and dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. So even though I'm preaching again on the Incarnation, it is certainly something that we will never exhaust what uh, the the exhaust that topic, and it will never be out of season. So uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and go to the text, which is for today, Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, uh, verses 1 through 11. So 
that you'd please open your Bibles if you have them. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the first verse of Philippians 2, here, Paul starts to lay down a base for what he's about to ask. He's giving a reason that you should comply for what he is going to command. And any time that we're going to ask something difficult, there's always like a build-up to it. There's this build-up to why we are asking that. My daughter Jacqueline has already realized that. She's only four years old. But... Uh, if she wants candy, let's say, instead of her dinner, which she knows is something big to ask of mom and dad, she start, tries to build this argument for it. Uh, she really hasn't mastered it yet, so the argument goes something like this. I'm tired. I'm so tired. I, I can't eat dinner. I just want some candy. Okay, now that's not very persuasive, okay? Thankfully, Paul is much more eloquent in what he says here. Because he, um, he appeals to something that the Philippians and we already have in our faith in Jesus. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, there's any affection and sympathy. And at this point, as we're hearing Paul list all those things off, we should be saying, yes, we have all of those things. Okay, So yes, we have all that. What is it, Paul, that you are asking us to do? Tell us, because we will do it. And then Paul calls for unity. He calls for humility. And he calls for us to consider others as more important than ourselves. I don't think I need to say this, but I'm going to anyway. Those are not easy things to ask for. Everybody likes the idea of unity. They like it in its big conceptual form when it's way out here. But then when it comes time to actually be unified, to have one mind about something, things get very difficult. As many of you know, I'm an 8th grade science teacher. And we have these team meetings every Thursday. 
And you get all of us together, and we all like each other. Let me preface this with that. We all like each other. We all get along. But you get us in that meeting, and we have to come up with a consensus about how we're going to make it so that our students are excelling, so they are in a good learning environment. All of a sudden, we can't come to an agreement on things. And after 45 minutes every Thursday, you kind of leave the room feeling like you've been banging your head against the wall for the entire 45 minutes. Because unity, having that one mind, being of one agreement, is something that is very, very difficult. It made me, uh, just those meetings have, have made me realize why Congress is such a mess. There's like 614 of them between the House of Representatives and between the Senate, and they all have these different ideas. And if 12 of us who all want the same thing for our students can't come to an agreement on anything, then no wonder all these guys can't do it. A unity, again, is something we all like to talk about, and we, we think it's great in the grand scheme of things, but when the rubber meets the road and it's time to do it in practice, it becomes very, very difficult. And yet that's exactly what Paul is calling the Christians and us as Christians to do. He wants us to be of one mind, of one love, agreeing with each other. Paul continues in his exhortation that we should do nothing from selfish ambition and nothing from conceit. And those are two huge roadblocks to any sort of unity. Not only are they two huge roadblocks to unity, they're also two motivating factors that a lot of people have built their lives around. Selfish ambition and conceit. They do things so that they look good. They do things so that they have the nicest things. Two of the largest shoe companies in the world are Adidas and Puma. And I don't know how many people know this, but they were actually, both companies were started by two brothers. And these two brothers uh, wanted to have a one shoe company, but they couldn't be in agreement with each other on how to do that. And so you had the one brother break off and start Puma. And they did it, and there was no unity between those two brothers. And even though they were very successful, obviously, I think, uh, you know, I own at least one pair of each brand of those shoes, and I'm sure a lot of people do as well. Even though they were both wildly successful in their endeavors, the unity of the family was broken. They did not get along. Hey, Paul is warning us against that. Because those things, selfish ambition and conceit, are going to get in the way of our unity. I know a man who is driven by this. He is driven by selfish ambition because his brother-in-law is more successful than he is. And rather than being happy for his brother-in-law who has had a lot of success and has all these nice things, he has made it his goal to beat his brother-in-law in terms of monetary wealth and things he has. There is not much unity in that family because of it. That selfish ambition drives them apart. I've been around some family meetings with them, and they are awkward. They both make a ton of money, a ton of money, but at the cost of the unity of the family, it's terrible. So that is something we must be aware of. For us to be in unity with each other, to be of one mind together, we are going to have to set aside selfish ambition. 
we are going to have to view other people as more important than ourselves. And this is difficult. I know what I'm saying here. It's a very hard thing to do. It goes against our very nature. We want to look out for number one. We want to make sure that we are taken care of first and foremost. And then we'll think about others if we think about them at all. That's why Paul started this passage pointing to Jesus. Because we're not going to do this on our own. He knows that we have to be focused on Jesus if we're going to do this. If we are going to set aside our own ambition, if we're going to set aside our own image and all of that and be united with each other, we are going to have to look at Jesus in order to do this. Paul has waited till the end of the passage, though, to pull out the really big gun. All right, the big guns come to the very end. At the very end here, and let's—I want to read the end of Philippians two, uh, one through eleven. I want to read five through eleven again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Father. So Paul goes to the greatest example of humility of all time. There has never been a better example of this than in Jesus. Paul goes straight to the Incarnation. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, and yet did not count equality with God something to be grasped. See, Jesus is God. He is of the same substance as God the Father. He's the second person of the Trinity. And yet, even in that circumstance, even with all of the divine attributes that he has, he does not try to make himself equal with God the Father. And in fact, he obeys him. He shows humility before him and comes to the earth in human form. That is incredible to think of. Because I think so many of us we try to do things like that. If we think that we are equal with someone or could possibly be better than them, we're going to try and put ourselves above them and over them. But Jesus, even though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. That was not something to strive for for Him. That was where Satan fell. Satan tried to be God. He tried to take the place of God. And he was cast out 
And then what does he do when he is tempting Eve in the garden? What does he tell her about the fruit? He said, God doesn't want you to have that fruit because he knows that when you have it, you will be like him. Knowing good from evil. Of course, we all know what happened. That's been, that was preached on a few weeks back. We know that Eve takes the fruit. And so does Adam. And ever since then, people have been trying to put themselves in the place of God. We had the people of Babel who decided that they were going to build a tower up to heaven and put themselves on the same level as God. And you had Nimrod go to the top of the tower and shoot an arrow at God as if God was his equal, as if he could defeat God and overthrow him and take his place. Pharaohs claimed to be God. Caesars have claimed to be God. And even now, people try and put themselves on that same level as God. I read an interview with a famous actor and this actor said that one of the books he reads the most is the Bible. And I, th I was like, hey, great. I'm glad to see somebody famous, you know, honoring God in some way. And then I kept reading the interview. <clears throat> the interviewer asked this actor, he said, are there any people in the Bible that you find that you really identify with? The actor said, you mean besides God? If you are reading the Bible and the person you identify most with is God, you are reading the Bible wrong. I'll tell you that much right now. That is not what you should be getting out of the Bible. There's a lot of other people that we probably should identify with and see how God has worked in their lives. Hey, but we should not be looking at the Bible and go, yes, I identify most with God. My situation is most similar to His. That is not the case at all. Jesus, the Son of God, with all the attributes of God, He did not try to be equal with God, so neither should we. Instead of Jesus trying to be equal with God, what does it say that He does? It said He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself. He takes the form of a servant. A servant. In heaven, in the form of God, Jesus didn't have to worry about what he was going to eat. He didn't have to worry about getting eight hours of sleep a night. I wish I got eight hours of sleep a night. But he didn't have to worry about that. He didn't have to worry about injury. He didn't have to worry about death. None of that. And he willingly takes human form where he will have to deal with all of that and does deal with all of that throughout his life. that the Son of God would willingly do that in obedience to the Father. This has actually been the source of many heresies over the 2,000 or so years since Jesus' death. Because it is so incredible, many people have gone, there is no way that Jesus being God ever would have come down and condescended to the point of being a man. He would not have done that. And so they say that Jesus only appeared to be a man, but that he wasn't actually a man. Because, because the body is just inherently evil and there's no way God would have ever taken on that form. And so he only appeared to be a man. 
Now the other heresy that has arisen is the opposite of that. Jesus was a man, but that he wasn't actually God. He wasn't fully God. And it's easy to see how these two things could have arisen because it is incredible to try and wrap our minds around. Jesus would do that. But this Scripture argues against both of those. Jesus was both in the form of God and willingly took on the form of man. He was both. Uh, There's a a word uh, or a term that Joey used and I'm going to bring it back up. I, I think it's worth mentioning again. And that, that term is it's the hypostatic union. And uh, what it basically is, is just trying to say, it's meant to say, when you say the hypostatic union, is that you are saying that Jesus is both God and man in one existence. All right, now one might think Jesus, fully God, if He's going to come down and be fully man that he might be born in a palace, perhaps to a queen with servants all around him, in luxury, with people serving him all the time. But that wasn't the case at all. Jesus came down, he was born in a manger, in a barn, surrounded by animals. His father, his earthly father, was a carpenter. This is a working class family that Jesus is born into. And then as he grows into a man, who are his followers? His followers are fishermen and tax collectors, people who are of no importance to the elite, to the ruling class. He hangs out with the dredges of society. That's not what we would expect. That is what happened when Jesus emptied Himself, taking on the form of a human. He became a servant. He didn't even make those people serve Him. Instead, He served them. He fed them. He healed them. At the Last Supper, Jesus washes His disciples' feet, which would have been unheard of. That was something you didn't do for your friends even. You had the servants wash your feet and their feet. But Jesus, the Son of God, does exactly that. He takes the position of a servant. And then, in the ultimate show of His humility towards the Father, and as a servant towards others, Jesus goes to the cross and He dies. For you, for me, anybody who placed their faith in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. That was the reason for the Incarnation. That was the reason that Jesus took on human form. Obedience to the Father coming to bring God glory and for our salvation. And He says that repeatedly throughout His ministry. He makes it quite clear that the works he is doing is not, they're not his own works, they're the works of the Father. And he doesn't want the glory, he wants the Father to be glorified. And he tells his disciples that he did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is incredible. That 
is the biggest show of humility that has ever been or will ever be. And of course, at the end of the passage there, we see that it, it, what Jesus does does not go without recognition. Now, God has given Him the name above all names. At His name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is all done what? And it will all be done why? The glory of the Father. Just as Jesus wanted it to be. The incarnation is the story of Jesus' humility towards God, towards people. And it should drive us to be humble towards God and towards each other. All for not our own good or for our own glory, but all for God's glory. When we look at Jesus and we see that He is far above what we will ever be. We could be the greatest person have the highest status in whatever we do and yet we would still be far below what Jesus was and what Jesus is and when we see that he being so much higher than we are or will ever be still was humble it should drive us to do the same thing to be humble before God before each other that brings us back to where we were at the beginning talking about not doing things from selfish ambition, not doing things out of conceit. If Jesus came down and did nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from conceit, then how can we do that? It should always be in our mind. Jesus was so humble that way that we need to be as well. We need to consider each other more important then we consider ourselves. We need to be of one mind, of one love. And it's vital that we are that way. I say that because it's the mark of those who follow Jesus. Jesus in John 13, 34 and 35 commands His disciples to love each other and He says this, By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. No, it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to consider people more important than ourselves. It's not always easy to love each other. And Paul obviously knew it wasn't easy. And that's why everything in this passage, he is pointing it back to Jesus. He points it back to the Incarnation. Because in that, in Jesus taking on human form, in that we see this lived out perfectly, and therefore we can do it as well. In Jesus, we are able to consider each other more important than ourselves. In Jesus, we are able to look out for the interest of others and not only for our own interest. Restoration Road. We look to the incarnation of Jesus, but it inspire us to love one another. We can do this by examining our lives and taking a look at our schedule and find the times in our schedule where we are doing things that, yes, seem important and, and all that, but are really being done out of selfishness. 
and for our own image. It may mean we have to cancel certain things to make time for other people. And again, these may be things that seem good on the surface. Things like going to the gym, going to school, staying and working late so that we can advance our careers. But those things are not more important than people. So we need to be willing to say, you know what, I was going to do this. This person needs help. This person needs love. They need to be taken care of. It may just be hanging out with them. It might be helping them move or taking care of them when they are sick. It might be catching a football game with them, even if you don't like the team they like. But we need to make time in our schedules for each other. Because we are called to unity. And unity doesn't happen when we're all living separate lives, running separate ways, keeping ourselves number one. Now, unity takes time. And it takes us considering other people and their needs as more important than our own. And I know that this is hard. Because... My schedule is packed. My family's schedule is packed. It took the Teals and the Colverns a month to finally get a day where we could hang out one afternoon and grab some coffee and just talk. I know it's difficult. But this is something we need to do. That's why we have home groups here at our church. Because then at least twice a month outside of Sunday mornings we are getting together. We are working on those relationships. We are loving each other. We are bearing each other's burdens and praying for each other. But I want to encourage us to excel beyond that. To have that mind that Jesus had where we are considering others more important than ourselves. We are taking time to be with them and to serve them. Let us work to be of that one mind that Paul wanted us to be Let us work to love each other more and more. All the time, seeking to honor God and bring Him glory, just as Jesus did when He humbled Himself and became a man.